Hello, and welcome to a new season of the history of the Germans, from the Interregnum to the Golden Bull. Now, this episode is something I never thought I'd do. It is a breakneck speed run-through through the history of the Holy Roman Empire from 919 to 1250, pretty much most of the periods I've covered so far. So, why do it? Now, if you're one of those who've listened religiously to all 137 episodes so far and you feel completely up-to-date with what happened in the past, this will not contain much news. However, it's been over a year since we last talked about the Empress and you may like a refresher about the Ottonians, the Salians and the Hohenstaufen. Just to get your bearings. Or, if you've only recently joined the Hotchipot family, welcome! These next 40 minutes or so should give you a solid rundown of the story so far. And if you follow the episode by reading the transcript on my website historyofthegermans.com, you can find links in the text that connect you to the episodes that go deeper into the stories behind the short summaries you find here. And last thing before we get going. The History of the Germans does not carry advertising, which means it's entirely dependent upon your generosity. If you feel like supporting the show and you want to bathe in my eternal gratitude, you can do so on patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or in the support section of my website. So, the Empire, or as it is called in 1250, the Holy Roman Empire. What is it? And more precisely, where is it? Sounds like a simple question. We can look at a map, like the one entitled The Empire of the Hohenstaufen, 1138-1268, which you can find in the map section of my website, historyofthegermans.com. That is quite neat, with external borders and internal subdivisions into the different princely territories. The problem is that such a map is completely anachronistic. The earliest maps that show territorial borders date back from the 14th century. If you look at a map like the Mappa Mundi in Hereford Cathedral, made around the year 1300, you will find that in the medieval mind the center of the world was Jerusalem. There are cities and important cathedrals and castles shown, but the map does not tell you who these belong to politically. Medieval people did not think in terms of territory. They were much more focused on the relationships and networks, the castles, towns, cities, their connections by roads and rivers. The way to think about political structure is to look at the personal relationships. Now, In the early times of the Carolingian and the Ottonian Empire, the emperor claimed the universal responsibility for the whole of Christendom. As a successor to the Caesars of antiquity, he had a claim well, to the whole world, an effective imperium over those parts that acknowledged Christianity as their religion. Every free Christian was bound to the emperor and every pagan was to be converted and thereby made his subject. And that is why Charlemagne felt that it was his job to conquer and convert the pagan Saxons in the 8th century and then incorporate Saxony into the empire. It may also explain why Frederick II believed that he could grant the Teutonic Knights the lands of the pagan Prussians thousands and thousands of miles away from him and separated from the empire by Poland. Now, this universal idea of the empire being everywhere never really went away, and the empress kept insisting on their role as the defenders of Christendom, and hence superior rank over regular kings. But actual power and influence was concentrated in those territories that accepted the emperor as their direct overlord. The empire was wherever the dukes, counts, bishops, etc. accepted that they held their lands as fiefs from the emperor. This could theoretically be a faraway land, 
like when the king of Armenia wanted to be crowned by Emperor Barbarossa. It was also true in the reverse, that if a prince refused to accept the obligations of vassalage and the emperor failed to bring him to heel, well, that territory would then leave the empire. Now, traditionally, the empire is seen as comprising three kingdoms. These kingdoms were first up the Regnum Teutonicum, the German kingdom, which had emerged from the old East Frankian sub-kingdom of the Empire of Charlemagne, comprising the duchies of Franconia, Swabia, Bavaria and Saxony. Henry the Fowler added Lothringia in the 10th century, which included modern-day Netherlands, parts of Belgium, Luxembourg and a chunk of eastern France on a line from Liege via Verdun to Toul. On the eastern side, this kingdom originally ended on the Elbe River. But the eastern expansion that started in the 10th century and really got momentum in the 12th pushed the borders of the empire eastwards. Then there were three kingdoms on the eastern flank, Poland, Bohemia and Hungary. And they were initially in some sort of vassalage to the emperor. However, Hungary and Poland were able to wiggle out of this subordination during the 11th century. Poland by refusing vassalage and winning a war against Henry II, Hungary by submitting under the direct overlordship of the Pope. Only Bohemia, roughly modern-day Czechia, remained part of the empire and its ruler even became one of the seven electors. The Second Kingdom was the Kingdom of Italy, which was originally the Kingdom of the Lombards, who had captured northern Italy from the Alpine passes to Rome. Now Charlemagne had ousted the last of the Lombard kings and the Kingdom of Italy was then held by his descendants until the late 9th century, when there was a brief period of separate Italian kings. Otto the Great removed the last of that line and from then on, with brief interludes during the reign of Henry II, the emperor was automatically king of Italy, by which is meant only northern Italy. The third kingdom was the Kingdom of Burgundy. That was another kingdom, or more precisely a set of kingdoms and counties, that comprised the Franche-Comté, western Switzerland and the Rhone Valley and Provence. Burgundy was the last kingdom to join the empire in the 1030s under Conrad II and was also the most decentralized. Though these were three separate kingdoms, an emperor did not need to be separately elected and crowned in each of them. Some did, like Barbarossa who got crowned in Aachen, in Monza and in Arles, as well as in Rome. But it wasn't necessary. In fact, though the German kingdom was a kingdom, there was no election or coronation to be king of the Germans either. The election performed, with very few exceptions, by the princes in the Regnum Teutonicum and the coronation in Aachen was to be king of the Romans. The king of the Romans was automatically king of all three kingdoms and, most importantly, the future emperor. To become emperor, however, the king of the Romans had to go to Rome and be crowned by the pope. To add to the confusion, no king of the Romans or emperor had real power in Rome ever since Otto III had been thrown out of the holy city in 1002. But the title stuck until about 1508. Napoleon resurrected the concept when he made his son the king of Rome, a sort of larvae stage in the process of becoming emperor. Now the territory is sort of clarified, let's take a look at the economy. Now the general perception that the Middle Ages was a period of stagnation could not be further from the truth. The time from 900 to 1300 was a boom time for Europe. The so-called medieval warming period allowed crops to be grown much further north than they are today, 
which is the reason why there was a vineyard in the London suburb I live in. Agricultural efficiency grew exponentially thanks to the transition from the ancient slave economy to free or at least semi-free labour, the development of new forms of ploughs and the horse collar, as well as the increase in demand for cash crops like wool, which was used by the dyers and weavers in the growing cities. And as population grew, more and more land was brought into cultivation. The forest that covered the entirety of the lands east of the Rhine during antiquity literally vanished and had to be replanted in the 18th and 19th century. And crucially, the movement of settlers into the lands east of the Elbe and then further into Silesia, Poland, Prussia and Livonia swelled food production further. Mining started in the 10th century near Goslar and its silver mines allowed for the minting of coins and hence monetarization of the economy. A hundred years later, even larger reserves of silver and copper were found in the aptly named Ore Mountains between Bohemia and Saxony. Famously, the mine of Joachimsthal in Bohemia gave us the word Thaler, which then via its Spanish derivation became the dollar. German miners were much in demand across Europe, developing pits as far away as the great Swedish deposits in Falun. All that growth did not happen only in the countryside. There had been some ancient Roman cities in the Regnum Teutonicum, Cologne, Mainz, Trier, Strasbourg, Augsburg, Regensburg, Salzburg and Vienna, but all the cities east of there, and many in the west too, were established during the Middle Ages. They were founded by ambitious kings and princes keen on the riches these places could generate. So if you go down the list of the ten largest cities in Germany today, Berlin, Hamburg, Munich, Stuttgart, Düsseldorf, Dortmund, Essen, Leipzig have been founded in the Middle Ages. Only two of them, Cologne and, well, to a degree, Frankfurt, are former Roman settlements. Trade flourished as the northern Italian cities rebuilt connections across the Mediterranean and brought luxury goods north, either across the Alps or via the Rhone River. From there, the south-north trade followed either the Burgundian Valley or the Rhine River to the great fairs of Champagne and then later the main cities of Flanders, Bruges, Ghent, Ypres and so forth. These trade routes were age-old, but during the Middle Ages old Roman roads were rebuilt and some, like the Gotthard Pass, were made viable for the very first time. What gave the empire an additional boost were new trade connections that had been of negligible importance in the past the east-west and the north-south trade. Now one part of this story is the story of the Hanseatic League, which brought scale to the trade in furs and beeswax from Novgorod, before developing an even larger trade in salted and dried fish to feed Catholic Europe with its hundreds of fast days. As shipping capacity increased, trade in grain, wood and ash became viable, allowing the great trading centres in Flanders and England to sustain themselves. Other trade routes were the Via Regia, that connected Smolensk, Kiev and Moscow, with Leipzig and Nuremberg via Krakow and then Breslau modern-day Rockslav, as well as the roads along the Danube and then south through the Balkans. Bottom line, the Middle Ages were boom times. How anyone can look at the skyline of Paris, Munich, Cologne, Milan or Barcelona and think otherwise is a complete mystery to me. The tallest pre-1850 buildings in many European cities are the spires of their Gothic cathedrals, true miracles in stone masonry, and even more astounding architecture and statics. 
What is hard to reconcile are these manifest witnesses to growth and prosperity with a narrative of never-ending wars and conflicts. How could a city thrive in its merchants transport goods all over Europe when one local lord or another besieged them every two years and robbers attacked the goods trains? The answer must be that these attacks were a lot less frequent and a lot less ferocious than we imagined them. Sieges usually lasted only a few days. Because if the place could not be taken by surprise in the first few days, medieval armies rarely had the equipment or the patience for a drawn-out siege. And merchants travelled together in groups, were pretty deaf with the sword themselves, and hired local thugs to help defending them. Providing safety was the key job of a medieval ruler, which gets us to the imperial administration. When the Ottonian kings and emperors took over in the 10th century, practically nobody could read or write, except for clerics. An administration of an empire that stretched from Rome to Hamburg and from Magdeburg to Lyon required letters. How else could imperial orders be conveyed to the dukes and counts hundreds of thousands of miles away, and how else could rights and privileges be confirmed? The Ottonians, and later the early Salians, were quite happy to use clerics in their chancery, and saw little need to build up their own secular bureaucrats. And that is because the church was very much beholden to the emperor. As in Byzantium, the head of the church was seen as subordinate to the emperor. From Otto I until Henry III, the empress could appoint the pope without even asking the congregation in Rome, and, even where the pope had been elected by the Romans, the emperor could overrule and even depose him. The College of Cardinals as a body to elect the popes simply did not yet exist. Churches and monasteries were seen as private property. They were essentially prayer factories, meant to ease the way of the local lord through purgatory. Another advantage was that these prelates had no legitimate offspring and could hence not pass their job on to their sons. Every time a bishop passed, the emperor had material influence in the decision of who would be appointed next. Therefore, the empress shifted more and more of their administrative tasks on to the bishops and abbots. Bishops were given entire counties to administer, to mint coins, to collect taxes and tolls, to muster army and to send them to the emperor, and so on and so on and so on. Now, By the mid-11th century, this system came under immense pressure from two sides. And the first one was the rise of lay piety. See, one of the side effects of rising prosperity is that people increasingly find the time to ask themselves some nagging questions, such as, why are things happening to me or my community? Why am I here? What happens to me when I die? What is the right way to live? And in the Middle Ages, the answer to all these questions was religion. If something bad happens to you or your friends, it's because you have sinned. Worshipping God is what humans are here on earth for, and if you are pious and you live a life that pleases God, you go to heaven. And now here is the snag. All this required an intermediary between the people and God. And that intermediary was the church. Which on the one hand gives the church enormous power. But it also creates enormous responsibility. Because if the church fails to function as an effective intermediary, because of corruption, because of lack of knowledge of the scriptures or other moral failings, whole communities can be consigned to eternal damnation. And so the people, from the lowest peasant to the emperor, demanded that the church cleans up its act. 
Greedy prelates who paraded their concubines through the streets were attacked by the townsfolk. Dissolute monasteries were subjected to strict discipline and lazy monks expelled. Monastic orders like the Cluniacs, the Cistercians and the Franciscans came into being, attempting to live an austere apostolic lifestyle. And their example put further pressure on the higher-ups in the church hierarchy to shift from worldly desires to spiritual objectives. Now, this bottom-up push for a better church was complemented by a top-down movement known as the Reform Papacy. Usually focused on Gregory VII, but starting much earlier and persisting well beyond his time in office, the Reform Papacy fundamentally altered the role of the Vicar of Christ. The popes had lost most of their spiritual authority when they had become the plaything of the Roman aristocracy during the 9th and 10th century, who happily put debauched 18-year-olds on the throne of St. Peter. One pope even sold the papal throne for cold hard cash. In 1046, Emperor Henry III encountered three popes who all claimed to be the leader of Christendom, and they were all utterly unsuited for the role. So he had them all deposed. He replaced them with a sequence of German prelates, one of whom, Leo IX, initiated a first set of reforms that were then pushed on further by his successors. So the popes changed their lifestyle to one more suitable to a religious leader. The members of the Curia were chosen on knowledge of canon law and scripture, and a college of cardinals was established to elect the pope, and the theologians tried to consolidate the teachings of Christ. Though the emperors had practically supported the reform of the papacy, no, they were pious laymen after all, the changed standing of the pope and with it the changed status of the church caused a huge headache. The Reformed Church should be able to organize its own affairs. In particular, it should be able to choose and invest its bishops and abbots based entirely on religious criteria. And that would be okay if bishops and abbots were just the spiritual leaders of their flock. But, as we said before, by 1077 these same bishops and abbots had become the effective administration of the empire, alongside their duties as churchmen and priests. Pope and Emperor therefore clashed over the question who had the right to appoint, i.e. invest, the bishops and abbots. Now this conflict has become known as the investiture controversy, though the decision about who appoints and invests bishops and abbots was only one part of the conflict. It was also a conflict about superiority. Gregory VII and his successors took the view that the Pope is the head of all Christendom and that all monarchs have to bow to him. He even declared that he could depose any monarch and even an emperor. And the emperors responded with the two-sword theory, whereby the emperor and the pope stood side by side, the pope yielding the sword of spiritual power and the emperor that of secular power. The Concordat of Worms from 1122 is supposed to have put this conflict to bed. The compromise laid out within it suggested that the bishops and abbots get invested with their spiritual authority by the Pope and with their secular authority by the Emperor. Now this kind of compromise was pretty similar to what had been agreed in France and England around the same time. But whilst in France and England the Church and the monarch sort of reconciled and the ecclesiastical hierarchy was gradually brought back under the control of the ruler, this was not the case in the medieval empire. The conflict between Pope and Emperor continued well beyond the Concordat of Worms. And the reason the conflict between the Pope and the monarch was so much fiercer in the Empire compared to other medieval monarchies 
was only in part down to the competition over who was the universal defender of Christianity. It had also a lot to do with the role of the princes. What is a prince? Now, in the empire, a prince is not defined as the eldest son and successor to the monarch, but it is a specific rank in the imperial hierarchy. An imperial prince, a Reichsfürst, is someone who has received a fief from the emperor directly, as opposed to having received it from another noble. A prince could be a duke or a count, but a bishop or abbot could also be a prince. Being a prince came with a set of rights and privileges, many of which had been regalia, i.e. had been the rights associated with kingship, such as the right to call in taxes and tolls, build castles and bridges, mint coins and administer justice. The first structural conflict between the emperor and his high aristocrats, these are the future princes, dates back to the mid-11th century, to the time of the emperors Henry III and then Henry IV. When Henry III comes to the throne in 1039, the empire had gone through a long period of consolidation of power in the hands of just one man. Henry the Fowler had started out in 919 very much as a primus inter pares, as a first amongst equals, but already his son, Otto the Great, had assumed a more elevated position when he set himself down on the throne of Charlemagne in Aachen, and as time went by, control tightened, the imperial families gained more and more titles and more and more lands and rights shifted into the administration of the imperial bishops and abbots. By the 1050s, the emperors introduced a new tool to further strengthen their administrative grip. They increasingly employed so-called ministeriales. These were unfree men trained as either fighters or administrators. These men were bound to the emperor due to their status as unfree serfs. They did not have the rights and the freedoms a true knight had, who had voluntarily entered into the mutual obligations of vassalage. Ministeriales could be sent out to build and garrison castles that were then dominating the surrounding countryside and keep the local aristocrats in check. This use of the ministeriales, and in particular their use in securing an imperial territory around the unimaginably valuable silver mines of Goslar, infuriated the neighboring Saxon aristocrats. They felt, as their leader Otto von Nordheim said, that the ruler had moved from being a king to being a tyrant. And that rendered their feudal obligations null and void, and since no free man should endure such humiliation, rebellion was the only honorable course of action. Now this local conflict between the emperor and his Saxon subjects turned into a civil war engulfing the whole empire, when the emperor Henry IV simultaneously picked a fight with the pope. The trigger was a conflict over who would appoint the Bishop of Milan, the Pope or the Emperor. The two sides exchanged increasingly angry letters. Henry IV foolishly called his adversary, Hildebrand, not Pope, but false monk, and demanded that he vacated the papal throne. Pope Gregory VII responded by excommunicating and then deposing Henry IV. Initially, the imperial bishops and many princes supported Henry, but their resolve crumbled as evil portents appeared. The nobles, not just in Saxony, but also in Swabia and Bavaria, saw the opportunity to curb imperial power. An imperial diet of all major princes told Henry IV that he would lose his throne unless he was released from the ban within a year and a day. That led to Henry IV's famous journey to the castle of Canossa, where he intercepted Gregory VII, 
did penance for three days in the snow and thereby forcing the Pope to forgive him. That was a cunning move that saved his throne, but not his imperial power. Because even though the emperor was released from the ban, the princes still deposed him and they elected a new king. In this election, they also declared that any new ruler of the empire was to be chosen solely on the basis of merit, not on hereditary rights. The civil war that followed lasted, well, depending on what individual conflicts one includes or does not include, for either 30 or 80 years. Henry IV did win the first round against the opposition and even ousted his enemy Gregory VII from Rome, but was later bottled up in Italy for almost a decade and finally deposed by his son Henry V. Henry V stabilised the situation to a degree, but when he died without a male heir, his successor Lothar III had to fight with Frederick and Conrad of Hohenstaufen, who felt cheated for the throne. Conrad of Hohenstaufen then became the next king of the Romans, but was now in turn in a constant war with Lothar's heirs, the House of Welf. That meant that, except for some brief interludes, imperial power was contested for one or other part of the empire throughout the whole period from 1077 to 1152. And at the end of the process, imperial power and possessions in the northern half of the German kingdom were almost completely lost. The area north of the Main River began to forge its own destiny, away from the imperial gaze, giving rise to some of the most powerful principalities of the late Middle Ages and early modern period, Saxony, Brandenburg and Brunswick-Hanover, as well as the Hanseatic League and the land of the Teutonic Knights. As for imperial history, it became a story of the south and the west, of Swabia, Bavaria, Franconia, Burgundy and above all, Italy. Frederick I Barbarossa assumed the throne in 1152 and settled the civil war. He was a descendant from both sides of the last conflict. He was a son of Frederick of Hohenstaufen and of Judith from the House of Welf. The new king not only reconciled the two rival clans that had fought over the throne, but he had also roped in the other princes into his political projects. He gave up the ambition to consolidate imperial power in Germany and instead went back to the earlier models of a king as first amongst equals. As an honest broker, he settled long-standing conflicts between various princes by granting new ducal prerogatives to Austria, Meranien and Zeringen and awarded titles and lands to others, whilst keeping barely anything for himself. Now, since he left no political testament, we do not know what Barbarossa's long-term plan was. But judging by his actions, it seemed that he had decided to leave the German kingdom to the imperial princes and instead create his own power base in northern Italy. Northern Italy by that time had become a land of powerful cities, rather than one of princely territories. That does not mean there were no aristocrats, in fact the cities were dominated by oligarchies of noble families. And these cities were constantly at war with their neighbours, creating a sort of chessboard of alliances. Based on the logic of, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, cities formed alliances with the neighbours of their neighbours to fight their neighbours. Or, to say it simply, all the black squares were fighting all the white squares on the chessboard. Now, from the perspective of a German high aristocrat, northern Italy, that had no grand territorial princes, was a no-man's land, ready for the taking. Enough loot for himself and to reward his loyal followers. 
and initially everything went really well for him. He could gather huge support from the imperial princes to pursue several major campaigns in Italy that were extremely successful. He took and he destroyed the largest of the Lombard cities, if not the largest and richest city in Europe, Milan, in 1162. After that, he resurrected the Roman law of antiquity that saw imperial power as absolute and demanded the return of all previously lost royal rights and prerogatives in the Kingdom of Italy. Now, the cities of Italy did not like an overbearing emperor any better than the German princes did a century earlier. They buried their differences. They rebuilt the city of Milan and they formed the Lombard League with the explicit aim to oust the invader. And Lombard cities found strong support from their neighbour further south, the Pope. The Pope too did not like the presence of imperial troops so close to Rome. Moreover, Pope and Emperor had a long-standing dispute over the inheritance of the great Countess Matilda, which comprised Tuscany and chunks of the Emilia-Romagna. Barbarossa responded to the challenge by mounting the largest of all of his campaigns into Italy, and instead of attacking each of the cities along the way, he decided to go straight for the jugular, to head for Rome, and to force Pope Alexander III into submission. And on July 24, 1167, his army captured Rome, after a brutal fight during which parts of St. Peter were set alight. The Pope had fled to Benevento, but Barbarossa had his antipope stage a sumptuous coronation of his wife. And that was the high point of his career. The next day, dysentery spread through the imperial army like wildfire. Rome's climate was notoriously unhealthy, in particular in the height of summer. And without wanting to exaggerate, the death toll was completely devastating. Most of the great families of the realm lost at least one member and the great Chancellor of Barbarossa and Archbishop of Cologne, Reinald von Dussel, perished. After this disaster, Frederick Barbarossa's political system collapsed. His princes no longer saw him as the great victor offering the riches of Italy, but as a man condemned for his sins, in particular the sin of creating antipopes and the burning of St. Peter. Though he made several more attempts to regain his position in Italy, few princes were willing to support him, and in 1177, after the final defeat in Legnano, he had to make peace with the Pope and the Lombard cities. Having lost the fight for Italy, Barbarossa began gathering his own territories in the German kingdom instead. He leveraged his position as emperor to call in lands that have become vacant due to the lack of male heirs. In a weird way, the catastrophic losses at the Siege of Rome helped, as it left many a county without successor. Within a relatively short period of time, Barbarossa acquired an L-shaped dominion, stretching from Alsace through the Middle Rhine to the level of Frankfurt and from there eastwards to Bohemia, including large parts of Franconia and the important city of Nuremberg. So Barbarossa was now no longer the respected arbiter of princely disputes, but he had become a player in his own right. And he decided to create his own family power base, his Hausmacht, from which to steer the empire. And this model of emperors whose main source of power are the family possessions rather than the resources of the office will be the dominant political structure for the empire going forward. And the limits of this model became apparent when the largest landowner in the empire 
Henry the Lion from the House of Wealth, Duke of Saxony and Duke of Bavaria, came into conflict with his vassals. Henry the Lion had tried to consolidate his power in an attempt to achieve quasi-regal status. When Henry's rivals hit back, Barbarossa could not or did not want to come to the Lion's aid. Henry the Lion lost the contest and his vast possessions were divided up. Bavaria went to the House of Wittelsbach. Westphalia to the Archbishop of Cologne, and the eastern part of his lands to the Ascanians. Only the land around Brunswick was left to the Lion, who was also exiled. Only one participant in all this got nothing, and that was the Emperor Barbarossa himself. Nobody wanted to allow him to expand his already large dominion any further, and he did not have the power or the resources to force it. Now, the Hohenstaufen then got one last lucky break. Barbarossa's son and successor, Henry VI, had married the aunt of the King of Sicily, who somewhat unexpectedly died without legitimate heirs. Henry VI then used the ransom King Richard the Lionheart had to pay him for his release to fund a campaign to gain his wife's inheritance. And by another stroke of luck, the superannuated empress gave birth to a son, Frederick, in 1194. The Kingdom of Sicily turned out to be a poison chalice. Sicily, which comprised most of southern Italy and was one of the richest kingdoms in the medieval world, reached almost up to the gates of Rome. And that meant the papacy was now surrounded by lands that were, at a minimum nominally, and often also practically, controlled by the emperor. And that would be an uncomfortable situation for anyone, but if you add to that the disagreements over the implementation of the Concordat of Worms and the spat over the inheritance of Tuscany, it's easy to understand why the relationship between Pope and Emperor went from animosity to outright hostility. Breaking the link between Sicily and the Empire became a focus of papal policy from the day Henry VI marched into Palermo in 1193. And the Pope did not have to wait long to make a move. In 1197, Henry VI died just 32 years old. His heir, young Frederick, is barely three years old, and his mother whisked him away to Palermo. The empire is therefore now rudderless. Henry VI's brother, Philip, Duke of Swabia, reluctantly picks up the title of King of the Romans, but has to contend with the son of Henry the Lion, Otto IV, who enjoys papal backing. Another civil war follows during which both pretenders hand over royal privileges right and left and centre to gain support amongst the princes. And when Philip of Swabia is assassinated in 1208, precious little is left of the imperial regalia. Otto IV, once champion of the Pope, was now undisputed king and was even crowned emperor in Rome. But he faced the same dilemma as Barbarossa. With little imperial rights and possessions still available in Germany, an emperor needed to leverage his position into obtaining some of the riches of Italy. And Otto IV decided to go after Sicily, given, well, it was ruled by a child and then riven by constant infighting. And that was again a bad move, since it blew up the relationship with the Pope. Otto IV is excommunicated and had to run back to Germany to shore up his realm. Pope Innocent III then sends young Frederick, the son of Henry VI, now 16 years old and at that point the last male Hohenstaufen, to follow Otto IV north and 
depose him. And Frederick does what he's told. And thanks to the Battle of Bouvines, he did not even participate in, Otto IV is ousted and Frederick becomes Frederick II Emperor. The other thing he was told to do, and did not do, was to relinquish the crown of Sicily, at which point we are back to imperial papal standoff. Frederick managed to keep the conflict from blowing out into the open for an astoundingly long time, by regularly promising to go on crusade. The Holy Land was in dire straits after Jerusalem was lost and the failures of the Third and Fourth Crusade. Now, when Frederick finally sets off on crusade, the Pope had already lost patience and had excommunicated him. So papal armies invaded Sicily whilst he was en route to Jerusalem. Frederick II managed to gain Jerusalem by negotiation rather than by force, but got precious little thanks for that. Upon his return, he achieved a reconciliation with the Vicar of Christ, but only after defeating the papal invasion army and threatening the city of Rome itself. From then on, things held together more or less until 1245. Sicily is firmly in Frederick's hands, he is nominally accepted as overlord of northern Italy, and he de facto controls several cities and important castles there. Which gets us to the question, what happened to the Regnum Teutonicum the kingdom north of the Alps. Now Frederick II had stayed there from 1212 to 1220, just enough time to complete his fighting against Otto IV, but he did not set foot there again except for a brief interlude in 1235. For him, the empire north of the Alps was of secondary importance. What he cared about was that there would not be a rival king who could lead armies south and mess up his political plans in Italy. He was therefore happy to leave the princes with all the privileges and all the rights they had amassed during the civil war between Philip of Swabia and Otto IV. And to make sure that no local rival could emerge, he had his son Henry elected king of the Romans and crowned in Aachen. Henry was just nine years old when he was made king and thus educated and guided by senior German princes, first Archbishop Engelbert of Cologne and then Duke Louis of Bavaria. Problems arose once Henry had reached adulthood, and Henry took his job seriously, and so he began rolling back the concessions made by his father and by his other predecessors, which inevitably brought him into conflict with the princes. And that was exactly the opposite of what Frederick II wanted. He wanted peace and quiet up north, even if that meant the emperor had little power there. He sided with the princes against his own son which point Henry felt utterly humiliated and rebelled. Frederick II came up to Germany, defeated his son by sheer weight of imperial prestige and the display of exotic animals and his entourage. Now, given that the whole issue now had become public, Frederick II had to formalize the rights of the princes and the constitution of the empire, which he did in a document called the Mainzer Landfrieden of 1235, issued in both Latin and German. And this document consists broadly of two sections. The first one defined the status of the various princes, bishops and nobles, and the second established the framework to maintain peace and justice in the empire. Under the Mainzer Landfrieden, the hierarchy of the empire differentiates between imperial princes and other lords. An imperial prince is someone who holds at least one of his fiefs directly from the emperor. Other lords are mediated i.e. they are vassals of an imperial prince, not 
of the emperor. And below them are then the free men who turn maybe vassals of a mediated lord, unless they're tolling on the land of an imperial prince or even the emperor's land himself. And that is a major difference between kingdoms like England and France and the empire. The kings of France and England were the direct lords of all free men in the kingdom and could call upon them to go to war on the king's behalf, even if their immediate lord wasn't necessarily going. In the empire, the emperor had no such rights over the subjects of his imperial princes. If he called for war, he needed the imperial princes to come along for the journey and bring their forces. If they refused, well, that was that. Furthermore, imperial princes automatically received the right to exercise the imperial regalia in their fiefs. And these included the right to administer justice, mint coins, raise taxes and tolls, build castles, found cities, establish mills and so forth. Over the centuries, princes had obtained these rights one by one from the emperors, sometimes in exchange for services rendered and sometimes by hook and by crook. The Mainzer Landfrieden cleaned this mess up and simply declared that all imperial princes could exercise all these rights within their fiefs, even if they had never previously had the right or had lost the relevant charters. And the final really big concession was that the emperor allowed the princes to pass their fiefs on to their daughters or even other relatives should they die without male offspring. And that was huge, because it meant the emperor could no longer revert a fief that had expired. And this process, called Heimfall, or Eskiat in English, had been one of the main tools medieval monarchs had used to replenish their royal demesne. Meanwhile, the imperial princes often retained the right to Eskiat and kept confiscating the lands of widows and orphans who happened to lack the protection of powerful warriors. And then there is the second part of the Mainzer Landfrieden, the rules about conflict resolution. The main role of a medieval monarch was to provide peace and justice, as we said before, and that was a difficult thing to achieve. The preferred conflict resolution model in the 13th century was, well, the feud. Because in the absence of a functioning system of courts and a central authority to prevent violence, feuds are an entirely rational way to enforce a claim though probably not one that ends up favouring widows and orphans. Abolishing feuds everywhere in the empire, as Frederick had attempted in Sicily and might have wanted for the empire, was simply out of the question, given the weakness of the imperial position. So the next best option was to regulate the way feuds can be declared and are to be conducted. Now, under the Mainzer Landfrieden, any feud had to be formally declared and the parties had to observe a three-day cooling-off period before hostilities could begin. And certain acts of violence were prohibited upon sanction of instant imperial ban. And that was in particular, one was not allowed to set things alight, in particular not houses, barns and castles. And finally, before a feud could be formally declared, the parties had to go before a judge, someone appointed by the emperor, and it could even be the emperor himself. Now, historians, as I increasingly learn, are not lawyers and hence are keeping stumm on what exactly this judge could decide and how a judgment could be enforced. I tried to read the original text and uh, left none the wiser. What is clear is that the parties have to get a judge's decision, but then neither party is still able to initiate a feud if they do not like the outcome. So it seems the judges acted more as arbitrators, 
attempting to diffuse the tensions and arrive at a mutually acceptable solution. That's not a judgment as we would regard it today, but it was a way to reduce the overall level of violence. Once this constitution was laid out, Frederick II returned back to Sicily and had his second son, Conrad IV, elected King of the Romans. And then he gave him strict instruction to be a good arbiter between the princely interests and, for heaven's sake, do not rock the boat. His older brother and predecessor was led away to prison in Puglia, where a few years later he ended his life by driving his horse down a cliff. Given this shining example, young Conrad IV did exactly what his father had asked him to do, which was nothing much. Now the conflict between the Pope and the Emperor escalated dramatically in the 1240s, as Frederick gained more and more power in northern Italy and the Pope got more and more concerned about imperial encirclement. Pope Innocent IV actually left Italy for the safety of Lyon, which was technically in the Empire, but practically outside of imperial reach. In 1245, the Pope called a church council to, well, excommunicate and depose Frederick II. At the Pope's behest, some of the imperial princes elected an anti-king, Heinrich Raspe, the Landgraf of Thuringia. Exactly the kind of situation Frederick II had tried to avoid by making all these concessions in 1235. And this was not the only part of the political edifice of the Hohenstaufen Empire that began to crumble. The Lombard cities reunited into a second Lombard League and in 1248 inflicted a massive defeat on him before the walls of Parma. Conrad IV too lost a battle against Heinrich Raspe, though that was a little bit less decisive. So when Frederick II died in 1250, his empire was in dire straits. He had himself become increasingly paranoid and had even accused his closest advisor, Petrus de Venere, of treason, had him tortured and killed. Once he had a whole brace of legitimate sons and an even larger of illegitimate ones, they would all perish as the Pope was hell-bent to have the Hohenstaufen destroyed root and stem. And this story is very moving and very sad, but too long to recount here. What matters is that Conrad IV left for Sicily only a year after his father's death, leaving behind his little boy Conradin as the last representative of the Hohenstaufen north of the Alps. Conradin never took a major role in imperial politics and perished in his attempt to regain Sicily for his family in 1268. So the empire was left to a series of ineffectual kings, Heinrich Raspe had been replaced by King William of Holland, who spent his days trying to grow his own territory on the Lower Rhine, and upon his death in a frozen Frisian lake, two new kings were elected, a Spaniard, Alfonso of Castile, who never set foot in the empire, and then Richard of Cornwall, brother of King Henry III of England. Richard was a bit more interested in the job, but got entangled in English politics, which turned him into an absentee landlord. The vast lands of the Hohenstaufen as well as all that was left of the imperial possessions, were suddenly without legitimate owner. They became the last great territorial freeding frenzy before the gates for new entrance into the circle of imperial princes closed down for good. So, here we are. The Holy Roman Empire is still enormous. It is still stretching from the gates of Rome to Hamburg and from Rostock to Arles. Its cities are still thriving and its peasants are bringing in rich harvests. But by the time Richard of Cornwall dies in 1272, the empire, as a political construct, 
had suffered from 50 years of neglect, of rulers disinterested or disengaged. The resources of the office, the imperial regalia and the castles and estates are lost. When Henry the Fowler took on the Kingdom of East Francia in 919, it was a hospital pass. But it still looks like a lottery ticket compared to becoming King of the Romans in 1273. Still, this next crop of rulers, often derided as minor kings, were in fact much more successful than their more glamorous predecessors. The first will lay the foundations for a family fortune that at its height has become an empire where the sun never sets. Another will finally break the hold of the papacy over the emperor, and again another will create one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful, medieval capital the world has and will ever see. And that is what this coming season is all about, the hundred years from the interregnum to the golden bull of 1356, or how the medieval empire becomes the Holy Roman Empire, with its prince-electors, its imperial diets, courts and ceremonies. An empire often laughed at as ineffective and antiquated, but that had survived for centuries and had bestowed a legacy of regional cultural centers that are some of the greatest attractions of modern Germany. I hope you'll come along on the journey as we find out how all this arose from the debris of the medieval universal empire. See you then. Now I hope you enjoyed this painfully condensed summary of the history of the empire during the high middle ages. As I've been rushing through things at a rate of knots this podcast is not famous for, I'm sure some things may be unclear or you may want to hear the long version again. Therefore I've posted a transcript of today's show on my website historyofthegermans.com where I have placed links to the relevant episodes in the text. And if I have not completely screwed it up, you should be able to literally just click on the respective highlighted sentence and it should take you through to the relevant episode. And I very much hope that you will come along for the next season, which starts next week with The Interregnum, Die Schreckliche, Die Kaiserlose Zeit, The Horrible Time, The Time Without an Emperor.